Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Stefania Palmer, our Southeast Asia correspondent. Joining us from New York via Skype is Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. This week, we'll be looking at Goldman Sachs' problems in Malaysia, an interesting story about Credit Suisse urging customers to move money out of the UK, And finally, our review of European banks in 2018. First, though, to Goldman, and I'm delighted that Stefania, who's normally resident in Singapore, is actually here with us in the studio. It's been another pretty bad 24 hours for Goldman Sachs. They finally now got the criminal charges filed against them in Malaysia. What does this mean for them? This is basically the biggest concrete action that Malaysia has finally issued against Goldman since elections in May. There's been a massive build-up in terms of rhetoric, in terms of very senior politicians demanding that Goldman returns some of the fees and some of the money that 1MDB paid them to arrange bonds for the state investment fund. But this is really big news in Malaysia. It seems as if Malaysia is kind of piggybacking on the charges that were announced by the D. OJ just recently. In fact, it's targeting and saying that some Goldman Sachs units, as well as some of the former bankers there, including Tim Leisner and Roger Ng, were issuing false statements to misappropriate $2.7 billion from the bonds that were issued. And these were then used to bribe some Malaysian officials. And this is exactly what the DOJ also stated. I guess the main difference is that Malaysia is also charging three Goldman Sachs units themselves in their own case. Now, Stefania, remind us how long this dates back and also what repercussions this is likely to have. So the 1MDB State Investment Fund was set up by former Prime Minister Najib Razak in 2009. It was just three or four years later that there were some indications that probably some fraud, some embezzlement was linked to 1MDB. Everything sort of came crumbling down when Najib Razak was ousted in elections this year in May. And that really was the big catalyst for the opposition to really kick off a very, very fierce investigation, both in the former prime minister and his dealings with 1MDB, but also in terms of the network that was created to allegedly embezzle something like $4.5 billion from the investment fund. But really, the change in government in Malaysia was absolutely crucial because prosecutors in other jurisdictions that are investigating this matter, because it obviously has international reach, were really struggling to dig deeper into the affair because Malaysia was not cooperating. But now that obviously opposition is uh, now in power. Really, it's a free-for-all and investigations are deepening. And the ramifications, obviously, in Malaysia are pretty profound. But does this concretely mean that Goldman, now that criminal charges have been filed against them, could be frozen out of business, both in Malaysia 
and in other parts of that region? In Malaysia, they've already slimmed down considerably their presence. They still technically have an office there, but sort of the investment banking end of it is virtually non-existent. If anything, it's mostly sort of with management, private banking. In Malaysia, every sort of banker or lawyer that I speak to say that essentially as of now, it would be very, very hard for Goldman to do any business, especially with the government, especially with any government-linked companies. And those tend to be the biggest clients that you can have in Malaysia. Asia. In terms of the rest of Asia, they've grown considerably in places like China. And, you know, a number of analysts and even competitors say that it probably won't completely dent their rise in that part of the world. But it remains to be seen what happens if and when the units that were charged by the Malaysian government just yesterday, if they find these Goldman Sachs units guilty, will the jurisdictions where these units are incorporated then feel obliged to act based upon the result of this case in Malaysia? That's the big question. Let's cross over now to Laura in New York for a US perspective on this. As Stefania mentioned there, Laura, to an extent, the Malaysian authorities are piggybacking off the US Department of Justice case. Tell us how that all fits together and what the impact on Goldman has been in the US. Yeah, so there's been a case that the US DOJ has been building now for, I guess, several years. And that is looking at the same issues. And basically, so far, the US is only after the individuals. They haven't filed any charges against Goldman Sachs at this point. The firm is talking to them about what kind of questions, if any, the firm has to answer in relation to what's happened. But there are no criminal charges against Goldman Sachs so far in the US. It's just against the individuals. In terms of how this overlaps with it, I guess the only good news for Goldman Sachs yesterday was that there weren't any new allegations in terms of what was filed in Malaysia. So it doesn't look as if there are any new facts coming to light for the firm. The other thing is that the US and the Malaysian legal systems are quite different. So it doesn't necessarily follow that just because Goldman Sachs has been charged with a criminal issue in Malaysia, they will automatically also face a criminal prosecution in the US. It is certainly a possibility, but it's not an eventuality. I guess the main issue that we're hearing today or that we've been hearing here over the last couple of days really is how will this impact on Goldman Sachs' international business? So Goldman Sachs issued a statement yesterday and they said, these charges do not affect our ability to conduct our current business. That means that being charged doesn't affect their ability. It doesn't mean that being convicted wouldn't affect their ability. So in the US, there is an automatic knock-on that if a US firm is found guilty of US criminal charges, there are strict prohibitions that kick in at that point and it means that you can't service among other things, certain institutional investor funds like pension funds, if Goldman wished to continue servicing those, they would then need to get a waiver from the Department of Labour. So there are technical things that kick in in the event that a US firm is found guilty of a crime in the US. It isn't immediately clear what, if anything, kicks in technically in the event that a US firm is found guilty of a crime in another jurisdiction. So I think that is something that very much has to be played out in the event that there is a guilty conviction against Goldman Sachs in this case. Well, thank you for that update. We'll keep watching it closely. Let's move on to our second story. And Stephen, you had a really interesting piece about Credit Suisse urging its private wealth clients to consider shifting stuff out of the UK ahead of Brexit. I suppose this is all part of the growing concern about a disorderly Brexit with no deal. What exactly did they tell their clients? Well, this was all prompted by Theresa May pulling the vote in Parliament on her deal to exit the EU which has just prolonged the period of uncertainty, which will then lead into another period of uncertainty with the proposed transition period. And basically, these private bankers, they're reaching out to their clients, they're fielding inquiries. And the long and the short is they've said, we're noticing an increased trend 
among our ultra wealthy, super rich clients to get their assets out of the UK. And you might want to consider doing the same. You might want to accelerate this process before the next vote, which is scheduled for mid-January. So they really are going out there. And both from a client feedback perspective and their own perspective, they really are indicating the change in sentiment towards the UK as we've reached the end game for the agreement to leave the European Union. It sounds a bit like panic stations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we spoke to some other wealth managers, and I'm sure Credit Suisse are not the only ones doing this. But they said, you know, at this point, we wouldn't encourage clients to sell their house, get their money out and run. You know, we're trying to sort of calm the situation down. So certainly, I think perhaps they could have used some more circumspect language in their telephone calls and in emails with the clients that we spoke to. But, you know, it is, according to them, a very definite trend and, and they can argue that they're really just trying to do best by their clients. I mean, it's indisputable UK stocks have fallen. The pound has repeatedly crashed and is trading near multi-year lows against a lot of its counterparts. So there is a definite negative sentiment against the UK at the moment. And perhaps it's not unexpected that a few of our more well-heeled London residents are trying to get their cash out. Well, we'll monitor that as well. Let's move on for a quick final look at a very big topic. This is a year-end look back that you've been working on, Stephen, on the European banks. It's been a pretty bleak year for European banks, it's fair to say. A 25% fall in share prices across the board. They're now trading at very low levels, barely half of the book value of their net assets. Tell us more about why this has happened. Brexit is obviously one factor. And maybe give us a look forward to 2019. And is there anything to look forward to? Well, it is going to be a bit of a bleak segment, this one. This has been the worst year since 2011, which you'll remember was the sort of height of the Eurozone crisis. Uh, about $380 billion of shareholder value has been wiped out of European bank stocks. This is largely happening because of underlying concerns about low profitability among European banks. Investors are not convinced that they've changed their business models sufficiently to reflect the new regulatory and business environments since the crisis. And then on top of that, you've got a whole pile of idiosyncratic issues. You've got money laundering scandals coming to light at Danske, which is ensnared Deutsche Bank as well, which trades right at the bottom of the pile, a quarter of the book value of its net assets. So investors think that the current management is destroying 75% of the implied value of the bank, which is pretty severe. Now, if you look ahead to next year, things don't look like they're going to get that much better. The much ballyhooed European rate rises look further and further into distance. We're not really seeing any major structural overhauls being unveiled by European banks. So they do look like they're counting on the external environment changing rather than them actually improving. And you still have macro risks as well. You know, the Italian populist government, there's been a bit of a softening in their standoff, but there's still lots of worries about that country's banking system and, and its future in the euro. And in addition to that, you've got other concerns about the UK linked to Brexit, as we mentioned before in the previous segment. So I don't think 2019, at least at this point, is shaping up to be very much better than the Annus Orabilis we've just seen this year. Sell, sell, sell. Well, I'm afraid as this is the last Banking Weekly before Christmas, um, we've left you with a rather bleak outlook. Uh, apologies for that, but we'll be back in the new year, hopefully with a brighter story to tell. In the meantime, do have a happy holiday season. And in the meantime, my thank you to Laura, Stefania and Stephen here. Thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until 2019, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.